News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. In May 2017, near the end of an ordinary Wednesday morning rush hour, a sewer pipe set above the barrel corridor of Penn Station burst open. Within minutes, streams of excrement poured through the station's tiled ceiling. Sludge spread from a shabby McDonald's at one end of the corridor to the Long Island Railroad ticket windows farther down. Armed with mops and buckets, janitors placed rolling dumpsters beneath the heaviest streams, but they couldn't contain the flood. Unwitting commuters, their eyes cast at the downpour, traipsed through the mess, tracking it in all directions. A stench permeated the whole complex. That's an excerpt from This Is Why Your Holiday Travel Is Awful, a story by... Mark J. Dunkelman, in Politico, a story that catalogs the epic upheaval of Penn Station, one of the world's most trafficked transportation hubs. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Christina Greer and Alex Lynn. And joining us on the phone is Mark Dunkelman, a fellow at the Taubman Center for American Politics and Policy at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs, and the author of the book, The Vanishing Neighbor, The Transformation of American Community. His Politico New York article, This is Why Your Holiday Travel is Awful, is a history of a generation of failed efforts to make Penn Station, the most traveled transit hub in the Western Hemisphere, into a not terrible place, and some explanations of why that hasn't fully happened after a generation. Mark, do you want to uh, jump in by taking us through the original sin of the original Penn Station, and then maybe tell us about the mess we're in now and how the ghost of uh, Robert Moses is haunting this whole thing? That's, uh, that's, uh, that'll take me a minute. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to do it as briefly as I can so we can get into the conversation. The original Penn Station was just a small portion of a massive project by a private corporation, sort of the General Motors of its day, which is the Pennsylvania Railroad. Pennsylvania Railroad built the tunnels that connect New Jersey to Manhattan, cross Manhattan, then cross under the East River and go into Long Island. The New York Railroad, the New York Central Railroad, which was the Pennsylvania Railroad's competitor, had built the train tracks that go into Grand Central, coming from the south down what is now Park Avenue. And the Pennsylvania Railroad in the the turn of the 20th century, the tracks actually ended in New Jersey. So you would end up having to transfer onto a ferry to cross the Hudson River to get into Manhattan. And so this huge corporation had no way of competing with its main rival in getting people onto the island of Manhattan. So Alexander Kassat became the CEO or the, the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. He's actually Mary Kassat's brother and lived in Philadelphia. And he endeavors to build these tunnels and as a sort of a, a tribute to the power of the Pennsylvania Railroad to build a grand, huge new train station at what is the site of the current Penn Station. So the super block between 31st and 33rd, 7th and 8th Avenue, Manhattan, which at the time is, is sort of the red light district of Manhattan. It is fairly affordable real estate. There's, there's a big population living there, uh, many of the people of color. Um, and in fact, one of the interesting sort of little tributaries of the story is that when, when the Pennsylvania Railroad sort of clandestinely buys up this real estate to build their train station, 
many of those people move up to Harlem. So a lot of the history of African-Americans in Harlem begins with the history of Penn Station. Hmm. It doesn't begin, but that's, that's a, a, a big portion. Probably moving too slowly through the story. In, no, no, this, uh, in this over the great. course of the, the first decade of the 20th century, they build this grand station. It becomes the fourth largest building in the world after three buildings in Europe. And it is designed by Charles McKim of the Convenient White, the same fellow who designs the West Wing of the White House and Columbia University and several big museums, sort of the premier architect of his day. And it is just an enormous, beautiful station. After it opens to a great deal of fanfare, basically the same time as Grand Central, the Pennsylvania Railroad continues to grow. And like at the end of the Second World War, it's bringing in just millions and millions of passengers in Pennsylvania Railroad then Penn Station is packed with passengers. Many more of them actually turning out to be commuters coming in on the Long Island Railroad, which is at the lower level of the uh, of the old Penn Station. Fewer using the, the inner city uh, service, but nevertheless, it is packed in a successful station. And this is the era of the big glass ceiling and the kind of like beautiful wrought iron work that goes around all these like little domed areas, right? So the, the station is actually two parts. On the 7th Avenue side, you'd walk in right where you walk in today, sort of, you go down steps beneath Tupin Plaza, right there at 32nd Street. That was, that was a huge colonnaded front on 7th Avenue. And you would walk down almost like a, a nave in a church, which was, they called the arcade, which had stores on either side. And then you'd get down to essentially where, when you're going through the central corridor today, it opens up into sort of a semicircle. At that point in the old station, you would have gone down this huge uh, marble colonnade of stairs, 40 stairs, to a, the, a grand waiting room right there, sort of in the middle of the block. And that was, they called it the largest room in the world. It was huge. It was uh, incredibly tall, based on the baths of Caracalla, this uh, ancient Roman ruin. Uh, that, that was a waiting room, so it had it actually, there were waiting rooms also where you sat. That, that room was so grand and austere, they didn't even have any uh, benches in it. Once your train arrived, you would pass through there to exactly what you're talking about, which is a, uh, a glassed-in train shed. And there are pictures of both of these. So, so, so there's sort of a, a, you're going from the old world to the new world uh, as, you, as you move closer and closer to 8th Avenue. And you get on the trains in an area that is bathed in light, sunlight from from exactly ceiling glass domes. And it's such a big difference um, from where you start your piece, where it's just like raining sewage on people through old tiles. In Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> in Dunkin' Donuts, such right. like a different vibe. Yes, it's, it's a totally a totally different vibe. What's <laughs> interesting is that we remember the old station as this grand station. But by the time it was demolished, the Pennsylvania Railroad begins to fail in the late 50s, early 60s. And during the Second World War, um, it, for fear of German bombers coming across the city, the, the station was had been was open 24 hours, and they had this, this glassed-in um, glassed roof. And so during the war, they had painted over the glass. Um what, uh, why? To, so, so, so it wasn't a target for bombers. Oh, gotcha. And and so by the time you get into the fifties, the Penn Station itself is not looking so great. 
and uh, really, you know, it's a huge expense to, to keep it up. And I found this fascinating article by Louis Mumford for the premier architecture critic and intellectual in the 50s talking about how decrepit the whole station was before its demolition. Um, and that he wrote in The New Yorker, the plasters begun to crack and peel in the 7th Avenue corridor. The mural maps are almost invisible. And as if to accentuate the dirt, the thrifty management has merely scoured the columns and walls to the height of 10 feet, making the worst of a bad job. So, so it's interesting today because people talk about the old Penn Station uh, as Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan would, would say, which was that its demolition is the greatest act of vandalism in the nation, in the city's history. But in fact, when it was taken down, there wasn't that much protest because, I mean, there was some protest, but there wasn't a lot of protest, and largely because the station itself by that point felt dilapidated greatly, greatly. and. Um, so- and that's an important part of the story that often gets lost. So is this story part of a larger book project that you're working on? Because there was so much detail um, and bureaucratic. I, I mean, at one point, I almost pulled out a piece of paper and started drawing a map of the various local, state, and federal uh, characters in the narrative. So are you are you going to make this into a much longer project? Because there were certain parts, Mark, that... I wanted you to flesh out for me. I mean, there were certain actors that I, I, I was like, I know they have a backstory. I want to know more about how particular individuals got to be so powerful in these random bureaucratic entities. Well, I, I'm going to take this podcast and, and give it to my editor at North, and we'll see what he says <laughs> afterwards. Well, tell him um, to give me a call <laughs> because that's totally uh, all you but, need. But I, I've got it. There, there is an incredible amount of detail, and some of the back, the, the, the side stories are fascinating. Um, uh, some of it even beyond Penn Station, the, 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 the way the bureaucracies change in the years after the station is demolished between 1963 and by the time the Madison Square Garden is erected in 1968, um, and in the years that follow, like the, the, the way that the government in New York State and really I think across the country works and the way that progressives in particular think about government changes. Uh, in a really dramatic way that it continues to reverberate today. So some of those things, it does seem like, are worthy of a book. Um, there may be a few more articles before there are a book, but you're absolutely right that the story is fascinating sort of on a whole number of levels, and there are lots of colorful characters throughout. Right, because this is what I wanted you to um, to just tell our listeners a little bit more about. I've already sent the article. Essentially, we have a lot of Knicks fans who listen to the podcast, and I've sent this to lots of Knicks fans, and basically with the attachment that just says, mandatory reading for any Knicks fan. And can you just walk us through a little bit more? There was a part in the in your piece that confused me just a little bit when you're talking about the sort of power play and the power struggle between then-Governor Spitzer and Dolan, the the owner of the Knicks, uh, and whether or not they're going to tear down a, a wall uh, that is that is slated for, you know, sort of like landmark status uh, or protected status as a landmark. Um, and I think it's Dolan who says, you know, like, this is almost religious for me. And I, I didn't really understand kind of some of that struggle between Spitzer and Dolan. So can you um, tell us a little bit more about that part of the story, especially since we have so many Knicks fans who listen to the podcast? <laughs> sure, sure. So there's a plan in the 1990s to uh, 
moved Penn Station out from beneath Madison Square Garden into the Farley Post Office building across the street, across 8th Avenue, which has a grand colonnade and actually designed by the same firm that had designed um, uh, the original Penn Station. Oh, not to uh, interrupt, and I do want him to get to the, the Knicks, uh, the Dolan, but the it is bananas how the post office guys stalled the whole thing. That part of the article is fascinating, how they would only walk people through yeah. in guided tours, and then when they finally just busted in to have like a surprise <laughs> inspection, they're like 80% of the place is empty, and half of it's being used as Don't a... Don't mess with the post office. They're one of the <laughs> oldest institutions in America. Half government. of the rooms are being used to what? Bang uh, dents out of old mailboxes? Like, Gangster. Th- ga- yeah. Gangster. Amazing. Anyway, sorry. I just needed yeah. our listeners to know that detail. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's the banana part of the story is the degree to which uh, the post office dragged its feet during the 1990s. But, but that plan falls apart after 9-11. Right. Um, uh, and so in the sort of in the course of 2002, 2003, 2004, a series of developers, private developers, think to themselves, this portion of Manhattan, this, the far west side or the, the portion that is in Midtown but, but west of 7th and 8th Avenue, is ripe for development because it is... Got, it is the best connected portion of Manhattan, and it is also, by many measures, the cheapest submarket. So, if you you said the cheapest submarket, submarket, incredibly appealing. So, the Pataki administration at the time develops a plan with uh, two companies related in Bornado, two developers, to uh, build essentially a huge new Rockefeller Center um, development in that that corner of Manhattan around Penn Station to demolish a lot of the low-standing buildings, to demolish the Hotel Pennsylvania, to build some skyscrapers that would be taller than the Chrysler building and the Empire State building. Merrill Lynch, in fact, was at one point going to be in the build a tower for itself right there at the southeast corner of 33rd and, uh, and 7th Avenue where the Hotel Pennsylvania is today. That whole $14 billion development to build something larger than Rockefeller Center and the Chrysler Building combined in this area, hinges on the ability to move Madison Square Garden off of the site that it is today and put it on the back of the Farley Building, namely on 9th Avenue, um, on the, but in the same block where that colony building is, but on the sort of the back half of it, which at the time, engineers thought you could do. You could go a much nicer arena uh, for the Knicks and the Rangers and the other shows that come in more box seating, a brand new arena. And then that would free up the current Penn Station block, current train station. And, and at one point, people thought you might be able to build some skyscrapers there as well. Um, that was more iffy later. So now they're engineering that suggests maybe you could. In any case, the, the trick here is that the Dolans, who own the Knicks and the Rangers and Madison Square Garden, are pretty reticent to take their arena, which is in pretty valuable real estate, in the sense that, you know, you can get to a game from New Jersey, from Long Island, from all sorts of places in, in, with one, you know, one stop, right? Like you, you, if you live in Ronkonkoma, if you live in Trenton, you can get on a train, arrive in Manhattan and go literally without going outside into your game are pretty loath to move to box, right? Like that's a, that's valuable real estate. Mm-hmm. And so, the question in sort of 2006-2007, once Elliot Spitzer is governor, is can you get the Dolans to agree to move 
and what what will the state pay them to to subsidize the move to build the new stadium? What will the developers pay? And you know what will the details of it be? And the Dolans, who are you know thinking of their own business legitimately, are worried that if they take their arena, even if it's a nice arena, and put it on the backside of Farley, that no one will know will, will see it. Right? That, that, that by some mechanism today, by some measure. If you get to Madison Square Garden today and you know that it's somewhere around 7th Avenue, 8th Avenue, 33rd Street, you don't really see it, right? You see Two Penn Plaza, you see all the traffic going into Penn Station. It's sort of a hidden hidden arena by, by, by some measure. They don't want that to happen again. So they want to, have, to do a bunch of stuff to the Farley building to make it so that it is, right, it is marketed as, you know, the world's most famous arena. They want signage across the colonnade, which is a landmark. And there's an internal wall inside the Farley building that you would, like, once you walked up into the building through that colonnade or off to the side, that you would, wouldn't be able to see the arena itself as you walked in. So in, in, in a way that before this last $1 billion renovation of the current Madison Square Garden, you couldn't for a long time see the outside of the arena. You couldn't see yourself arriving in the arena. So yeah, they now, were just worried it would be there's, still there's the landmark post office. In a really tense meeting near the end of Elliot Spitzer's very short governorship, uh, the Dolans come to the governor's office. They have a meeting. And in the course of the meeting, James Dolan, Jim Dolan, the owner, says, demolishing this landmark wall is a religious issue for me. And this is after, and, if I recall from your article... Spitzer has Jim Dolan wait in the regular waiting area. Brutal. Yeah. Which he takes real offense to. As, as sort of a power <laughs> move, he, he has this, right, the sports mode will have to wait with the, with the general public. So what, what happens? Into a conference room. And what happens to the fucking steamroller after that? <laughs> so, so, he got steamrolled. Right. So, so, so they walk in, they have this meeting. It, it goes incredibly poorly, right? Spitzer's plan for this whole $14 billion development with the tornado related. Uh, hinges on the Dolans agreeing to move to the back of Farley. The Dolans won't move to the back of Farley unless they can have these, the signage, the wall, various other issues. And um, in the in the weeks that follow after this meeting falls apart, the whole thing turns. Uh, it all falls apart. Spitzer eventually, as we all know, leaves office in, uh, in a scandal. The Dolans also note, one, that they're not convinced like there's a fair amount of public subsidy that goes into this whole plan they're not convinced that the new governor david patterson will come through with that money uh, and he's not they're not convinced that, that, that patterson will have sort of the power inside as governor to push through the various roadblocks that stop big developments from happening or so he can be able to push through with the changes to preservation and landmark status is he going to be able to uh, push this idea and the whatever public subsidies are through the state legislature. And so eventually the Dolans, there's a, there's a moment where uh, the Dolans chief lobbyist hands Jim Dolan a very thick binder of all the things that have to happen in order for the move, move to move through, right? For, 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 for them to get the new arena in a timely manner. All these things that have to need to have happen. And they, I think they see the, like the, the thickness of the binder, and Dolan says, this is not going to happen. 
And so he decides instead, he says, well, we're pulling out. We're just going to invest a billion dollars of our own money in making Madison Square Garden itself nicer. And so that the, the, the Madison Square Garden that people now experience, yeah, yeah, people can, you know, probably, I'm, I'm sure your listeners have a variety of opinions about whether that was worth a billion dollars. But that's what the what, what Madison Square Garden claims we're invested in renovating the arena. So that, um, that's a great segue for us, right? So, so Dolan, who, uh, you know, helped, helped kill that Penn Station plan, one of many, um, helped kill the Olympics and that plan for the West Side, uh, helped kill the Knicks, but he's had agency um, over this, this arena, at least, as, as, as a private actor. Um, and I think the theme of your piece in some ways, and th- there's so many fascinating details there to go into, big picture, is that within government, no leader has that level of agency, that ability to be, at this point, a master uh, planner, if you will. The, the, the way the, the levers of, uh, of power and concerns are distributed, there are many vetoes on any given plan. Is that a, is that, is that a fair bottom line? And if so, how did, we, um, how did we get here? And what would Andrew Cuomo make of this, who, who very much considers himself a, uh, a master planner? Well, I, th- I think your description of my argument is exactly right which is that it used to be that progressive had the idea that the only way to really serve the public interest was to take power, which had been distributed among sort of political hacks, you know, the scions of political machines, Tammany Hall, and wielded power sort of in a parochial manner. The, the, the solution to that was to take power out of the hands of political actors and put it in the hands of experts. Authorities. People who would, were, generally, you know, these are uh, wasps or, or, or reformers uh, who, who really thought that they understood what the public uh, needed. And the classic example of that is Robert Moses, who came to power in the mid-30s, really wielding with the most powerful person in New York State through the mid to late 60s, and did made all sorts of, you know, the, the did a lot uh, to and for New York. Um, some of it very controversial and probably terrible, leaving scars across the, the city and the state. Uh, some of it pretty powerfully great. Uh, you know, his first major success is Jones Beach, which for you know generations has been access to the ocean and to recreation for for the middle class. He also built the Cross Bronx Expressway, which is um, you know one of the great mistakes. So. Um, <laughs> that's the, the understatement progress- of the century. Go ahead. I said that's the understatement of the century. <laughs> he, yeah. he literally um, destroyed exactly. families. Like, so purposely. The, the, by the late 60s, early 70s, while we're going through Watergate and Vietnam and a whole series of other uh, upheavals, I think the progressive movement realizes that their impulse for basically a half century to centralize power in the hands of sort of almost power. Um, was not such a benign or like th- th- there was limited wisdom in that in the sense that no one could stop Robert Moses when he wanted to do a project. Nobody had the power to do it. So our impulse really since then almost across the board has been instead of centralizing power to push it out from central nodes, to put more checks into the system, to say, you know, if a community opposes a project, we need to give them the voice, the agency to stop it. And that's, you know, 
in many ways, you know, I mean, you know, Robert Moses wanted to build an expressway across Manhattan, which would have probably, you know, decimated the village. And he also had one to do. He wanted to do one on 125th Street, right? And, and right, these were and Gene Jacobs and a series of other activists were able to stop him. Um, and that was from the beginning of the end of his uh, of, of his power. But there've been lots of proposals that have been bad that have been stopped because we were able to push power down and out give all sorts of checks, whether it's preservation or zoning or um, uh, environmental reviews or all sorts of checks now in the system. And the Public Authority the, Control Board, right? Go, go ahead. The, the, the Public Authorities Control Board is, a, is, a, is, is sort of yet, yet another example of that. So, so you um, create but, these but, authorities but, but, but to the get around... But the there's so many of them, right? There are so many levers, um, so many ways to oppose a project, so many laws that any major project needs to, needs to or, or, so, so many approvals that so many hoops you need to jump through. Um, and that if you, if you fail to jump through any single hoop, the project is dead. And even if you were capable of jumping through all the hoops, there are so many delays in their consideration that by the time uh, you, you have the approvals, the real estate market is turned and the financing for the project disappears. So that it makes it incredibly hard to do, in a, with any alacrity, a big public project. And so this is sort of the under, like, right, there are two extremes here. One is Robert Moses slash China, right, where a, where a central, powerful bureaucrat is able to steamroll local opposition to a project. The, uh, the other extreme is sort of what has happened to Penn Station, where there are so many hoops and power so thoroughly distributed and spread out that no one is able to push the project, even when there's, you know, someone described to me the Penn Station project, that there's no advocate for the status quo around Penn Station. Is that the move toward progressive politics, or is that an influence that New York in particular's real estate market and the corruption that it breeds in local politics, is that inherent to to the progressive politics or or is it inherent to New York City with all of our real estate mogul woes? So it's a, it's a terrific question. I think if you go across the country, and I, I, I spent a lot of time on Penn Station and less time in, elsewhere around the country, but if you look at all sorts of development challenges across the country, if you look at what's happening with affordable housing, in California today, or the, you know, the, the plan to build a high-speed rail in California, or even the time that it takes now to get between New York and Boston on Amtrak, which is a, really a function of the track more than it is the train, and the fact that it'd be so hard to uh, take land that you would need to straighten out the track so you could go faster. That in 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 each of these cases, you're you're absolutely right that there are moguls who take advantage when there are hoops for their own ends, right? In the sense that um, uh, when, when, when the system that we created to protect ourselves against the next Robert Moses created new levers for various, for, for almost anyone to use to stop a big public project, it was the moguls who were best equipped to take advantage. So as, as, um, as Harry pointed out, there's something called the Public Authorities Control Board, which is sort of a star chamber in Albany that probably deserves its own podcast, if not a series of podcasts, maybe even a book. 
um, because it is this, that no one understands exactly how it works, but it has the power to veto any major expenditure of funding. And lo and behold, the Dolans understood how the power worked and used that board to pursue their own interests. A couple of times, right? Had, Robert Bush never had to deal with a public authority control board. Right? He, was, he was the public authority control board all by himself and was sort of impervious to... So the power broker comes out in 1975, and the Public Authority Control Board is created in 1976 while, while the city is trying to stave off bankruptcy um, by, by the governor. And this fascinates me, ju- just the word authority there, right? Like you had these elected officials, and to get power away from them so things could be done in a more efficient and less corrupt way, you created these outside not directly politically accountable authorities, which Moses ends up using as his instruments of control. And then you create a board that oversees the authorities. And it's that board, several of these deals we're talking about, and going back to the Knicks, that's how they kill the Olympic Stadium, is with that authority. The authority is what takes down the, the, the Amazon's HQ2 plans for Queens, that you still have these authorities and they can make these decisions, but if you can't get things through uh, through this three-member board, that's one of the hoops of which th- th- things just die. So you, you, you both are removing power from uh, elected officials by creating these authorities and then, then are creating oversight in which elected officials appoint people who oversee the authorities. It just seems like almost a Rube Goldberg contraption of devices to build things and to stop builders from getting those things built at this point. And then you have Hudson Yards, which basically sets us back in labor uh, union relations like 50 years. Somehow that gets through. Yeah. What is it? Did we decide whether we think it looks like a shawarma or a cockroach? What what if it's just a, a – it's like a – it's a hologram. Shawarma roach. Right. Well, I mean – But but Hudson and, Yards gets through because the Jet Stadium and Bloomberg's Olympic plan gets fa- killed. Fall through, and yeah. And then the business community, which has been trying for literally a century to get something done on some of the last underutilized land in Manhattan, finally gets a long enough window um, and, and the financing 
you know, to, to, to create what, what is effectively a city within the city and to its credit, even with real labor issues, like employed a generation of, of people, many of whom, you know, are from New York who now live in the suburbs who built this damn thing. I, I mean, this was literally like, like a city that went up. Yeah, but I mean, I will say that there's some serious racial dynamics that went down with the building of it where Black and Latinx folks yet again are excluded from so much of the money that is being generated by this building in the building trade. So that's also part of my problem with Hudson Yards. It's like we're using these plans from the Bloomberg era, but like because of these complex labor relations, and I'm putting complex and serious air quotes over here, um, we're creating a generation of people who were able to build this thing, but it's also we created a whole other generation of wealth that excluded Black and Latinx folks yet again. So it's like we keep creating the same inequities as we build things. And I guess, Mark, you know, as we begin to wrap up, um, you know, Cuomo said that he wanted to be like the buildingest governor in the history of governors because I guess his dad didn't build enough for his satisfaction. Prisons mostly. Yeah, well, that's right. Um, who, Don't worry, we're building some new ones. Yeah, well, Jesus. Um, you know, you talk so much about the bureaucracy and like the intricacies of all these different folks. Um, who do you think is the most powerful person say, in this New York City, New York State orbit to get things built. Um, if we're thinking about, you know, uh, Penn Station ever moving forward, who's the most powerful person in your estimation after doing all this research? Yeah, so so I think the, 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 the takeaway that I would, that, 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 that I've come away with, that the, the core conclusion I've come to is that no one is power is as powerful today as Robert Moses, okay. um, uh, and that power has been distributed between these various agencies and the public and private sectors. I still think probably the governor is the most powerful figure. Now, um, is it because he just but, knows Albany better than most people in New York, or is it because he's powerful because he's the governor? I think it's. Because the governor can appoint people to these various commissions, because he can control capital budgets, you know, he's got a lot of leverage. But even the governor today, right, he's moving the, 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 the new Penn Station, uh, the Moynihan, uh, the, 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 there will be, I think, next year opening, a grand opening of a grand new train hall inside the Farley building which is like, you know, credit where credit is due, largely due to Andrew Cuomo pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. He'll be in the 10th year of his governorship when this happens. It shouldn't take, right? Like You think about how quickly that some of those pencil buildings have gone up in Manhattan, right? How, how much luxury housing has gone up, how quickly it goes up. I mean, I mean it sprouts like weeds almost. Yeah. And yet here, here is a station that serves the working and middle classes. It's taken, like, the first conversations about doing this are from the late 80s, right? It's now, it's the, the, and the, the station itself, the, 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 whatever opens, will, it will have taken more than 30 years. And you can go through all sorts of various iterations of, you know, the, the, the question you asked me was, who's the most powerful person? I think it is still the governor. But the governor today, in many cases, can't get obvious things done. And if you, we're talking about, you know, we celebrated the opening of the Second Avenue subway, or many people did, which was three stops, right? <laughs> three stops. We mm-hmm. celebrated the extension of the Seven Line, essentially because of Hudson Yards. It's one stop. There are entire neighborhoods in the Bronx, in Queens, 
even in Brooklyn, that don't have access to a, to a subway. You know, they built the first subway from City Hall to like Upper Manhattan in less than five years. Right? Less than five years to build it. Like it was a private business. The IRT built the subway in the first decade of the 20th century. It is outrageous that it took that long to build three stops on the Second Avenue subway. And we should have better transit to all the people who are living in, you know, in transit deserts in the outer boroughs. That should be doable. And my fear is that we've so overcorrected for the abuses that Robert Moses inflicted on the city and on the state. And also in his belief that, you know, trains were the past and cars were the future. That we are, we've made it impossible even for a governor or a, for, or a public servant who means well to expeditiously get things done for the people who need them most. Um, and so the question of who's the most powerful, I still think uh, the governor's the most powerful, but his power is so constrained by the negotiations um, that, that he or if, if there's a if she governor in the future has to engage to get a big project done that it makes it so that projects that are worthy can't get off the ground today, even if we are able to stop projects that would do more harm than good. Mark, there's so much more we could talk about here, including, you know, ULERP, environmental review, like what, what, which of these uh, obstacles need what reforms and what the unintended consequences of those could be in a generation uh, we may we may have to have you on um, again to uh, to continue this conversation. And thank you so much for taking the uh, the, the time today. And uh, readers, if you have not, go to a uh, Politico and uh, please check out. This is why your holiday travel is awful. And also for a uh, a shorter version of the uh, the broad argument here, liberal activists didn't kill the Amazon deal. Robert Moses did. Thank you so much for coming and uh, stay tuned in the upcoming months for some new special hosts to cover Harry and Christina while they're off gallivanting on various holiday plans. (laughs) And thanks again, Mark. And thank you to all of our Knicks fans for listening to FAQ NYC. Be sure to check out Mark's latest article in Politico.com. It's very good. And it's it's got a real opener. It's epic. 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 <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, Mark. Thanks, guys. Take care. F-A-Q. F-A-Q NYC is a production of Racket Media and is supported by listeners like you. We're headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, where this week's episode was recorded. A special thank you goes to Mark Dunkelman, also Alex Lynn, our executive producer, and Adam Kamara, who mixed and mastered this week's episode. Remember, if you don't know, now you know. Tune in to FAQ NYC. Hi.